the National Archives podcast series, The Great Escape. You've seen the film, now hear the truth. Presented by Alan Bogan. Good afternoon, everybody. As you will gather from that, we've all seen the film, but do we really know the true story behind The Great Escape? <laughs> Hopefully today you'll be better informed when you leave here about what actually happened rather than the Hollywood version of what happened. Exactly 65 years ago today, at about 10.15 on a night of the fri Friday, the 24th of March, 1944, Flight Lieutenant Lester Ball removed the remaining few feet of soil to open the exit shaft of the escape tunnel, nicknamed Harry. This relatively innocuous action initiated a chain of events that led to the cold-blooded murder of 50 Allied airmen and the most comprehensive British war crimes investigation of the Second World War. While the 1963 John Sturges film loosely portrays the story of the so-called Great Escape, the reality was less heroic and far more tragic. This is what really happened. Firstly, a brief overview of the German security network. It's very complex, but the three organisations which I shall mention are the RSHA at the very top, which in a sense is the central security headquarters. Below that, and they need no introduction, is the Gestapo, the secret state police. And below that is Kripo. And they're equivalent really of the British CID, they're more like a criminal police. They're the three key organisations you should perhaps bear in mind when I'm talking about what actually happened. Before getting on to a bit of an overview of Stalag III, Here's some German security measures leading up to the Great Escape. Mid-1943, Himmler was, assumes overall control of POW security. The Eigel Order is issued by the Supreme Commander of the Armed Forces, um, known as OKW, stating that prisoners moved in bulk must be chained. February 1944, the Stuf Romish Free Order is issued by OKW, and it stated that escaping POW should not be automatically returned to their camps, but held in special detention pending consideration of each individual case. Early March 1944, and bear in mind the Great Escape took place on the 25th of March 1944, the Kugel or Bullet Order was issued. It stated that all non-British or American recaptured escapers should be sent to Mafhausen concentration camp with a letter K appended to their name. This indicated that such prisoners should be immediately executed. A little bit more overview of what's actually happening in Germany. At the time of the Great Escape, there was a certain amount of paranoia amongst the Germans, which led to a deterioration in the relationship between captor and captive. And some of the key points are, German labor, the German labour force was depleted by continuous drafts to her armies. Consequently, the country was filled with large numbers of foreign workers, slave labourers, in addition to prisoners of war. And remember, that's not just British and Commonwealth, we're looking at Russian, French, etc. Increasing numbers of escapes by POWs were partly due to overextended resources and an inability to effectively guard and contain the prisoners. The deteriorating military situation in, a, in association with the increased incidence of escapes and foreign workers, slave labourers on the run, caused concern over internal security at the highest level. And there seemed to be a genuine fear that escaping servicemen would link up with partisans and foreign workers for sabotage and rebellion. Just a bit of background about Stalag Lufri. The Luftwaffe run prisoner of war camp Stalag Lufri was located near was located near Sargon or Sargon, Silesia in present-day Poland. The East Compound was opened in April 1942 to hold prisoners of all Allied air forces. The first POWs to arrive were an advance party from Staligluf 1, which is at Bath on the Baltic coast. Numbers increased as more batches of prisoners arrived from various officers' camps or directly from the Luftwaffe's own interrogation centre called Dulagluft at Oberoso near Frankfurt on Main. The camp was eventually divided into five compounds, east, centre, north, south, 
with an overflow camp situated at Beleria, some five kilometres west of Shargon. At the time of the Great Escape, Stalablov III's commander was Oberst or Colonel Friedrich Wilhelm von Lindener Wildau, but we'll just call him von Lindener in future. Here is an aerial shot of the camp, and you'll see from here, this here is Hut 104, from where the Great Escape actually took place, wooded area here, and this is the railway station, which at the time was a major junction on the Berlin to Breslau railway. And this is, say, Hut 104, so the direct route through the woods to the station. There's a few shots, really. This is, this, is, this is the east compound, the first compound that was built. And it's a view taken from the guard tower. I believe it was seven, uh, 15 of these huts were built in the east compound. The building in the background, which still exists, is actually a grain silo. It looks like a small chateau, but it's actually a grain silo. And a few more kind of images which very much reflect the traditional image of a prisoner of war camp. This one you can see here, it was a heavily wooded area, and you can see the tree stumps which have been cut down to form the compound. This is a recently taken shot, about, I suppose about five years ago. This is the, the footings of one of the huts. The, the area is now heavily wooded and overgrown. You can see the footings of the huts. The hut ran this way and was subdivided that way. And uh, this sort of mother nature has taken over the site yet again. At um, Stalovlu Free, tunnelling was a standard pastime in the camp. And it's estimated that the Germans discovered at least 80 tunnels. These digging activities caused the authorities to install a control system of microphones buried around the camp perimeter, which from late 1943 gave proof that large-scale tunnelling was being carried out. Two more of the audacious escapes from there were the, were the Delousing Party and the Wooden Horse escapes, all from Stalaglifree, which I shall talk about uh, fairly soon. A little bit more about Stalaglifree. It was a very sort of typical camp in a way. Here... The, they've just finished building the theatre. The man, as I say, right at the back here is the carry-on actor, Peter Butterworth. This is a photograph from his son. And they've just completed the theatre. Uh, they put on stage shows such as this, Busby Barclay-style musicals. A more intriguing photograph there, I think. <laughs> and this is the remains of the camp theatre as it is now. The stage is up here. And you can see it sloped down to accommodate seats. And again, there's a thing they're called several on the site there. They're called fire pools. And basically, obviously, you've got um, wooden huts. You need a source of water in case there's fire. And you can see here that uh, Mr. Bristow, a warrant officer Bristow's steamboat, is they had, you know, model making clubs, sports days, etc., etc. And this is the fire pool. And obviously, it's the great amusement of everybody is showing them his steamboat. And this is what it looks like now. So obviously this is filled with water. Should there be a fire, they've got a ready source of water. Here is the site of what is often said in the film as the cooler. And the tunnel, Harry, the escape tunnel, did run underneath this, almost towards this edge here. And you'll see on an overhead shot that you can actually see the line of the tunnel and it ran underneath here. So this is the, you know, the uh, cell block or the cooler. Before the Great Escape, three intriguing events took place at Stalag Lefree. In November 1943, a three-week inspection of the camp was carried out by Max Weiland, head of Breslau Kripo, remember that's the CID, and a large party of experts. They gave the impression that they had failed to discover any tunneling activities and plans were made to enlarge the camp. This, this necessitated disconnecting the microphones, a remarkable step in view of the known tunneling activities and even more so because of the considerable time they were left unconnected. The first inspection was followed by a visit in February 1944 by SS Major Eric Bruner, who was the RSHA Special Representative for the Prevention of POW Escapes. The Commandant von Lindener had requested this visit as he sensed that an escape was imminent and feared the consequences. Bruner chatted with the Commandant but did not inspect the anti-escape measures within the camp, which it was his duty to inspect and which the Commandant had urgently asked him to complete. Nor did he order that the anti-tunneling microphones should be reconnected. Indeed, it has been suggested that it was German 
high command policy to encourage the escape and then take severe countermeasures. Lastly, in March 1944, and remember again the escape itself was in March 1944, just weeks before the escape, a meeting of the district camp security staff was held at, at Shargan, where methods to prevent camp breakouts were discussed. After this meeting, it is fairly certain that the Commandant von Lindener advised the British officers of the special dangers facing any recaptured escapees. Apparently, this was not repeated in the same, ter in the same explicit terms as those various orders, the Stuf Romish Free and the Kugel Order, but it, if the warning was given, it was almost certainly based on von Lindener's knowledge of the content of those special orders. This is the camp commandant at the time, uh, sorry, camp commandant, senior British officer at the time, Group Captain Massey. And here is one of the famous so-called ferrets, rubber neck, I think you can see why. And their job was to kind of prod around and get to know about any escape attempts. But there was a very good relationship at the time between the sort of Luftwaffe and the, um, and the, and the prisoners. This is the commandant at the time, Oberst von Lindener. It was a highly decorated First World War soldier, professional soldiers, respected by staff and the prisoners. And as I said before, before the escape, he allegedly warned the senior British officers about the increased security measures and dangers if they were caught. If he did indeed warn the senior British officers, why did they take no notice? Did they believe it was a bluff? Did they believe it would be bad for morale if they stopped digging? Or did they just ignore it completely? It, there was no documentary evidence to say one or the other. But the documentary evidence points to the fact that he did, as far as possible, warn them that these harsh security measures were now in place. Pre the Great Escape, as I said before, there were a couple of other memorable escape attempts from Stalag Lufri. And if you look at these two men here, these were part of the a delousing party escape. And what happened was, as you said there, the two men in the German police gazette photograph, which you just saw them, are these two men here. And um, they participated in the first mass escape attempt from Stalag Lefri in June 1943. A party of 27 men escorted by two German-speaking POWs disguised as guards were led out of the compound for delousing. Once outside, uh, Welch and Morrison put on the uniforms of the bogus guards. They were captured at a local airfield when trying to start an aeroplane. Perhaps the inspiration for the James Garner and Donald Pleasant attempt to get away by aeroplane. But the Germans were very fond of taking photographs of recaptured um, escapers and, and, and the means to which they went to escape. So there was no kind of, in a sense, no hard feeling almost, you could say. But the, the, this is one of the earlier escape attempts and of course the, another one which a film has been made of The Wooden Horse and so on, on 29th of October 1943 after 114 days of tunnelling Airman Eric Williams, Michael Codner and Oliver Philpott escaped via The Wooden Horse. This is obviously a frame from the film. All three weeks reached Sweden and re were repatriated back to Britain. They were the only men to make successful home runs from the East Compound a home run is generally, it's generally agreed that a home run is when you actually escape from inside a camp and make your way home from inside a camp. It doesn't, in a sense, count if you're shot down and make your way home very often with the help of a, a, an escape line, whatever. Home runs are, are really count for people who have actually escaped from inside a camp. We've done the German security measures. Tom, Dick and Harry. The North Compound was opened in late March 1943 and eventually held some 1,400 officers and 100 NCOs. Amazingly, by April, a month or so later, three tunnels named Tom, Dick and Harry were begun. Tom was discovered by the Germans in the summer of 1943 and blown in. At this point, I should mention that while some American prisoners assisted with the planned escape, in October 1943, they were all transferred to the South Compound. So I'm afraid we have no Steve McQueen and motorbike. As the tunnel dick was less well sighted, it was used as a hiding place for such as material excavated from Harry. 
In March 1944, 65 years ago, Harry was finished. Running from hut 104 towards the perimeter wire, it was 363 feet long, nearly two feet square, and 28 feet underground. The tunnel was in three sections with bays in each section for the men working the rope trolley system, which you'll see photographs of a bit later, that ran through it. And it was lit by electricity diverted from the camp's own electricity circuit. In all, some about 600 men have been involved in the tunneling and other aspects of the escape. The escape was kind of largely planned and headed by squadron leader Roger Bushell, who is known as Big X. He was amongst the uh, 50 people who were actually murdered later on. But it, there was a huge escape organisation. There was forgeries to be done, maps to be made, clothing to be altered. As in the film, there was all, all this organisation before you could actually leave the escape. There's a kind of plan of the tunnel. So imagine this is hut 104. You've got a stove there. Bellows for ventilating the, the tunnel. And you had these way stations there. Number 13 is called Piccadilly Circus. Uh, number 15, Leicester Square. And was, it aimed to come out in the woods, the other side of the perimeter fence. The escape itself... The escape took place on the night of the 24th, 25th of March, exactly 65 years ago today. The weather was extremely cold and on the higher ground to the south, snow lay up to six inches deep. It was planned at least 200 men would escape during the hours of darkness. Due to a miscalculation by the surveyors, while the tunnel emerged outside the perimeter fence, it was some way short of the tree line beyond leaving an expanse of open ground to be crossed. So when Leslie, Lester Ball opened up the tunnel, looked out, they weren't in the trees. There was a gap of open ground to be covered. And so you can see the various dotted lines of where the tunnel lines were, and you can see that Harry went right by the cooler there and right out into the woods. That was the theory. It was going to land up in the woods, but it fell short of the tree line. Those at the head of the tunnel uh, had a quick rethink and it was decided to tie a rope to the end of the exit ladder and run it into the woods. There a man acting as a controller would watch the sentries and give a couple of tugs on the rope when it was safe to emerge. The first controller was indeed Lester Ball. After seeing some 20 men clear, his place was taken by someone else and Ball was then free to make his own escape. The last controller was Flight Lieutenant Roy Langwell who was 60th through the tunnel. He was to stay in place in the trees until escaper number 80 had emerged, but he was among the four that were captured near the tunnel's exit. An apparent misfortune that may well have saved all their lives. It's, it's hard to know. Those chosen to escape first were German speakers. The remainder had been decided by ballot. The escapers were instructed not to wear identity discs in the belief that if they were caught near the camp, they could pretend to be foreign workers from a neighbouring labour camp. Nevertheless, some of them did carry discs. Most of the escapers elected to travel in pairs, choosing their own partners. All were issued with forged passes. Their clothes were mostly modified British uniforms, dyed and altered with different buttons. In very few cases were the escapers dressed in genuine civilian clothes. So the escapers were divided into three groups. Those wishing to travel by train for long distances were given priority through the tunnel. Then came those travelling by train for a short distance and then by foot, and lastly those travelling entirely by foot. The rate of departure was slowed by bulky baggage that caused sandfalls. More seriously, about midnight, an air raid in the direction of Berlin meant that the camp's lights were extinguished and the tunnel was plunged into darkness. Remember, their electricity supply system had been diverted from the camp's main supply. In addition, the guards were doubled. At 4am, the last change of guard took place amongst the sentries patrolling the wire. Some 50 minutes later, it was beginning to get light, and it was decided by the controlling officers in Hut 104 to make man number 87 the last one out. At about 5am, a guard patrolling further from the wire than normal apparently noticed the track in the snow caused by the escapers crawling from the tunnel through the snow into the woods and raised the alarm. By then, 76 men had escaped. 
And as I said before, four others were captured in or near the tunnel. These are some photographs from Stalagloo 3. These are the floor tiles by Hut 104. As far as I know, they could be the original floor tiles there. And what they've actually done, this is the end of Hut 104. They've marked out a sort of gravel path which takes you along there. And there is a wire there. A dummy wire fence. So you can see it comes all the way from there to there to there. Dummy wire fence, a perimeter road. And then this marks the spot where they think the tunnel emerged. In the, admittedly, it's now wooded, of course, but at the time it emerged fairly well short of the woods. It's contradictory. Some people say yard short, some say 20 feet short, some say 30 feet short. But whatever it was, it was short of the, short of the woods. These are some German photographs taken. So the alarm's been given. And later on, when we were investigating what happened, these are German photographs and the Imperial War Museum showing exactly what happened. This is the entrance to the tunnel. That's looking down the tunnel. And then a log it. And this is one of the trolleys used to transport the earth along the tunnel. And this is the so-called, the guard nicknamed Rubberneck, and he's emerging from the tunnel exit at the far end there. Here he's also demonstrating the homemade bellows used to ventilate the actual tunnel itself. And one of the other guards is demonstrating the penguin method of dispersing excavated soil. There's, the soil's in these bags and have a kind of drawstring drops down and you try to tread it into the ground. Not dissimilar in the sense of what you, you see in the film. Many of the escapers made over towards Shargan Station. This is a rear entrance to it, and it's just the other side of the woods, and a lot of them lost their way in the darkness. An air raid was going on, trains were cancelled late, etc., and two of the escapers reported a sort of local air raid ward and made them go into the air raid shelter. You can't be running around when there's an air raid on, go into the air raid shelter. And down here, these are the, right at the far end there, is a World War II air raid shelter through that door there. And there's the steps up to Shargan Station. This is what it looks like now. As I said, it was once a busy junction on the main line between Berlin and Breslau. It's now a bit of a backwater. And when you look at the timetable, it's probably only about a dozen trains a day. The back way into the station would have been just behind this. This is a water tower for locomotives. It was just behind there. Interestingly enough, what I find somewhat bizarre is that they've discovered the tunnel, they know there's been a huge breakout, but they did not dispatch, there's no evidence anywhere that the camp commandant or any, any officials dispatched guards to the station. Surely to my mind, the most, one of the obvious things, and there are a few contentious issues when it comes to this particular incident, I do not understand why when, when you've got a railway station, perhaps, I don't know, you know, a few kilometres away, you didn't get a truckload of guards and dispatch them to the station. There's no evidence that that ever happened. Planning the murders. The machinations, so these 76 men have got out, they've dispersed to all points of the compass. You know, you can think they've got north, south, east and west. The machinations behind the planning of the murders is far too complex to dis discuss today. But it can be summarised to provide a very much an overview. The German authorities did not have a clear picture of the situation until Sunday the 26th of March. So remember the escape took place on Friday the 24th. When a conference was held at Birchesgarden, amongst those present were Hitler, Himmler, Keitel and possibly Ribbentrop and others. Predictably somewhat, Hitler flew into a rage and demanded the death of all the recaptured escapers. Going amongst others, counselled against this, and after further discussions, the number was fixed at 50. Operational instructions, known as the Shargan Order, were sent by top-secret teleprinter to all Gestapo and Kripo regional headquarters. Those who saw this message recalled that it read something along the lines of, the frequent mass escapes of officer prisoners constitute a real danger to the security of the state. I am disappointed by the inefficient security measures in various prisoner war camps. 
The Führer has ordered that as a deterrent, more than half of the escaped officers will be shot. The recaptured officers will be handed over to AMTA 4 for interrogation. After interrogation, which is, yeah, AMTA 4 must be Kripo. After interrogation, the officers will be transferred to their original camps and will be shot on the way. The reason for the shooting will be given a shot whilst trying to escape or shot whilst resisting, so that nothing can be proved at a future date. Prominent persons will be exempted, their names will be reported to me, i.e. Himmler, and my decision will be awaited whether the same course of action will be taken. So Quipo were responsible for apprehending the escapers. As soon as men were recaptured, this was reported to the Central Security Office in Berlin, RSHA. Kripo headquarters in Berlin then instructed its regional officers that the prisoners were to be handed over to the local Gestapo. In turn, Gestapo headquarters in Berlin issued orders to the regional offices to take over a certain number of enemy prisoners of war from Kripo who were to be shot and afterwards to report the killings to Berlin. The first localised action was taken by the head of Breslau, Kripo, Max Weilen in whose administrative area the escape had occurred. He initially ordered a Kriegsfunden, which is a general war search. But when the size of the breakout was realised, this was raised to a higher state of alert known as a Grossfunden. This was a nationwide hue and cry, meaning that every policeman and every quasi-policeman in Germany and occupied Europe had the task of looking for escaped officers whose photographs were published in the German Police Gazette. Saw an example of that earlier with Welsh and Morris and the two men who eventually tried to escape dressed as uh, uh, Luftwaffe and tried to actually start up a plane before escaping. The thing about a gross founding was it not only involved the mobilisation of all branches of the police, including all auxiliaries and party formations of affiliated organisations, and whatever units of the Wehrmacht that could be mustered, but they actively interfered with almost every aspect of normal activity in Germany. To illustrate the scope of the security problem as well as the intensity of a search of this kind, the results of the first Grossfahndung, conducted in Germany from the 6th to 20th of March 1943, a year beforehand, is informative. The escape of 43 British and Dominion airmen from a camp near Posen occasioned the search. But the arrest included following escaped prisoners of war, 809, foreign workers who had left their assigned workplaces, 8,281, other persons wanted by the police, 4,825, making a total of 13,915. What is curious is there is no docu documentary evidence that the gross fardum of March 1944 soon after the Great Escape, we captured any persons other than the escaped POWs from Stalaglub Free. There was a selection process. So you, you have a number of men, but Hitler said, well, we, we, we need to you know, execute them all. It was agreed that um, the number would be 50. On March the 28th, this man here, Arthur Neva, he was head of Kripo in Berlin, began to select the men to be murdered using their personal file cards. Each prisoner of war had a file card, photograph, and they, they were held in a camp. But any, any, anybody in the army above the rank of colonel and all RAF personnel, there was a, another copy of that in Berlin. So there's a copy of the camp, but a second copy in Berlin. So... Arthur Neva began to select the men using their personal file cards. They included sort of, say, a photograph, personal information, detailed of previous escape attempts. The selection process is somewhat contradicted by various different statements, but it seems in some cases Neva gave instructions to Kripo ch chiefs that certain prisoners were to be sent on to named POW or concentration camps under Kripo uh, escort. Upon receipt of a telegram informing him of a recapture, he made a decision, reportedly based on the prisoner's age and status, middle-aged and with a family he lived, not too young and unmarried, and he died. As did all of the men of foreign origin, 
apart from free wanted for questioning on other matters. By foreign origin, we're talking about French, Czech, etc. And also, on top of that, is a large majority of officers from the Dominions were also murdered. The actual process is somewhat contradicted by somebody called Dr. Hans Mertens, who was actually in the room with Niebuhr when he made the selection. His statement indicates that the decision as to who would die was made all at once, but perhaps the number of cards on Niebuhr's desk was less than Merton's fault, and his, the decisions were indeed made as and when information was received, which seems most likely. Interestingly enough, Arthur Niebuhr himself was executed by the Germans as he was implicated in the July 1944 bomb plot to kill Hitler. Another, I suppose, key witness to the process who the Allies never had a chance to um, interrogate. But Mertens described what happens. He's in the room with Niebuhr. And Mertens says, I attributed Niebuhr's excited and uncontrolled behaviour to the fact that he was aware of the monstrosity of the deed which he was about to carry out. There may have been six or eight, perhaps even ten cards which I gave him. He threw several in front of me saying, have a look whether they have wives and children. After putting the cards which he had kept into two piles, he took my cards. I gave him briefly the personal particulars of these particular officers. I cannot remember the names of any. I remember, however, that Neva said in one case, he is for it. He put this card on one pile in front of him. I look at the picture of another officer, he said, he is so young, no. This card was put into another pile. On viewing another card, he said, children, no, and put it on the first stack. There were then several cards in both piles. The daily lists of those to be executed was passed to Gestapo Chief Heinrich Muller. Telegrams were then dispatched to the local Gestapo headquarters giving instructions and the names of the prisoners held by Crippo to be transferred to the Gestapo. Between the 29th of March and about 13th of April, the selected 50 men were shot at locations across German-occupied Europe. The Breslau, if you remember, Breslau, just southeast of Schagen, the Breslau Gestapo murdered by far the largest number of recaptured men, at least 26, but more likely 29, so roughly three-fifths. However, the events there are representative of what occurred elsewhere when escapers were arrested. 19 of the escapers were quickly recaptured in, in the vicinity of Schagen and Stagler free the camp. They were put into the local jail at Shargon and they were searched and identified by Crippo personnel. During the evening of Sunday the 26th, all 19 were transferred to the old civil prison at Gorlitz and it's still there. In front here is a courthouse. It's been modernised a bit, but that's the old civil prison at Gorlitz through this archway here. The 19 were, say, were transferred to the civil prison at Gorlitz. On the same day, von Lindener, the camp commandant, made a request to Breslau Crippo to have the prisoners return to the camp. This was refused. Crippo stated they could no longer accept his instructions as he, as he had been relieved of his command. Over the following days, another 16 recaptured escapers were taken to Gorlitz prison, bringing the total recaptured escapers to 35. A lot of the survivors say that they were taken to number 31 Augustastrasse, which is still there. And I think it's quite ironic that above the door there you have Salve, sort of basically a welcome. And this is the building itself. The Gestapo were housed on the first floor of 31 Augustastrasse. In Breslau, on the Tuesday 28th of March, Max Weiland instructed senior Gestapo officer, Dr Wilhelm Sharpwinkel, a person you will hear of again, to form an execution squad and appoint a leader. The man chosen was Gestapo uh, criminal over secretary Lux, L-U-X. On the morning of Thursday the 30th of March, and the memory escape took place on the night of the 24th to the 25th, Lux and his execution squad arrived at Gorlitz. There, the, he's a very sinister person, but he's an, the sinister, I should say, English-speaking Sharpwinkle, interrogated most of the prisoners. And in disobedience to instructions of Berlin, casually informed many that they were to be shot. At about 1300 hours or 1 o'clock in the afternoon on the same day, the first party of six men were taken away in civilian cars and a truck, 
we know this is a fact because other prisoners who survived were looking out the prison windows to see what's happening in the courtyard. This group consisted on, of squadron leader Cross, Flight Lieutenants Casey, Wiley and Lee, and Flying Officers Poe and Hake. At about half past three, a stop was made at a point on the autobahn some eight kilometres or five miles north of Halbo. It's called present-day Iloa, where the road leads through the woods. What happened, the Germans Germanicized all the names in Poland. There's the German name, there's the Polish name. And this is the road we're talking about. The, these other roads uh, didn't exist. We worked out by using some military maps, which we got from the local museum there, the spot the first party was roughly where that number is. It's roughly eight kilometres from there to there. And there you see is Shargon. They've come from Gorlitz down here, up this road, up there, stopped there, and their destination was theoretically to go back to Shargon for the, and be re-interned in Stalag Lufri. By using, say, some old military maps, and they describe in one of the statements here, one of the drivers says, oh, it was where the road... There was a little cut off in the road and there's a dip in the ground and it rose a bit there. We got to a point something like this, and I'm not saying this is exactly where it happened, but it's in this sort of terrain, something like this, that the first party of six were murdered by Dr Sharpwinkle's execution squad. The prisoners were told to get out of the vehicles and stood around in a group for about five minutes. Then Sharpwinkle gave their guards a sign to move them into the woods. There the prisoners were told that the sentence, which had been previously made known to them, would now be carried out. Remember, they weren't supposed to know this. They were placed in a row, Lux gave the order to fire, and after a second salvo, all the officers were dead. When interrogated in Moscow in August 1946, because Sharpwinkle was actually captured by the Russians, we tried to get him back but the Russians wouldn't let him go. It's debatable whether the Russians employed him because he was their type of man or whether they themselves executed him. But uh, Captain Cornish went to interview him twice uh, in Moscow. But Sharpwinkle co commented that the six men showed considerable calm, which surprised him very much. After the shooting, an undertaker was bought from Halbo so that the bodies could be immediately uh, cremated, an act obviously clearly contradicting accepted conventions. The undertaker's vehicles arrived at about half past eight that evening and took the bodies to Gorlitz for cremation. The urns were in Sharpwinkle's possession a few days later, several days after they were, had it, uh, they were handed to uh, Max Violin at Crippo HQ, eventually being sent to Stalag Lufri on at about the 15th of May 1944. The first teleprinter message that Sharpwinkle received her, giving him only the names of the first six officers to be shot, which leads me to believe that Arthur Niebuhr's selection was, was done on a sort of ad hoc basis. It couldn't have all been done at once because they were recaptured over in various spots over various days. Sharpwinkle's had a message that these six will be shot. And during the following days, obviously, further messages arrived from Gestapo headquarters. And in obedience to them... Lux and his execution squad carried out further executions. The details were reported to Sharpwinkle and then forwarded to Gestapo HQ in Berlin via top-secret teleprinter message, and that is key for something later on. So, next, the aftermath and the cover-up. At Shargon, the then senior British officer, Group Captain Massey, he was the man we saw in the photograph with a walking stick, was informed on the 6th of April that 41 officers had been shot while trying to escape. On the 11th of April, all the clothing of the 76 escapers was moved from the north compound and stored in the adjacent Vorlag, or sort of storage area. On the same day, this is the 11th of April, Massey left Shargon on the first stage of his repatriation back to England due to ill health. Purely by coincidence, he had been select selected for repatriation by a, a travelling medical board sometime beforehand. So the, the Germans didn't actually stop him coming back to this country, at least the Luftwaffe didn't anyway. On the 17th of April, Gabriel Neville of the Swiss Protecting Power paid a routine visit to Stalag Lufri, which the German authorities again decided not to stop. The new senior British officer, Group Captain Wilson, gave Neville a full report of recent events. Indeed, in July 1944, 
Wilson held a court of inquiry in the camp to investigate the incident, which those escapers who had been returned to the camp gave evidence. In the outside world, on the 19th of May, the British Foreign Secretary, Anthony Eden, made a statement to the House of Commons, informed that he had received information from the protecting power that 46 officers of the RAF Dominion and Allied Air Forces had been shot after a mass escape from Stalagla Free. Eden made a further statement to the House on the 23rd of June, revising the number of men shot to 50. The German response to this earlier statement maintained that during March, there were a number of mass escapes and POW camps throughout Germany, involving seven several thousand prisoners. Remember what I was saying earlier, there's no evidence, documentary evidence, that this gross fandung, this hue and cry across Germany, arrested anybody other than the men who escaped from Stalingrad Free. The Germans claimed that these, these series of escapes involving, involving several thousand prisoners were systematically prepared by the General Staff CLIs and had both political and military objectives, adding that this situation endangered public security throughout Germany. In order to control this state of affairs, harsh measures were ordered, including the use of weapons against any who resisted arrest or made renewed attempts to escape. Not convinced by this explanation, Eden observed, it is abundantly clear that none of these officers met his death in the course of making his escape from Stalagla-Free or while resisting arrest. He assured the House that His Majesty's Government are firmly resolved that these foul crimes should be tracked down and brought to exemplary justice. Soon afterwards, the German Foreign Minister Joachim von Ribbentrop broke off discussions with Great Britain. The Germans were now, in a sense, fully aware that the cat was out of the bag and realising that their explanation that all 50 prisoners were shot dead, number reported as wounded, while trying to escape was unconvincing. They now set about concealing the truth. Himmler had to provide an official excuse that the German Foreign Ministry could use in its dealings with the Swiss protecting power, which had been instructed to hold an official inquiry into the, into the affair. It was therefore essential that a statement, however false, should be issued. Gestapo head Muller issued orders for detailed reports to be made. The head of some Gestapo stations visited the execution sites of a member. There's execution sites all around Chaga, north, south, east and west. The heads of some Gestapo stations visited the execution sites to compile reports and have detailed sketches drawn. The cover-up included returning to the murder scenes to fire shots into tree trunks and telegraph poles to make it look as though there had been a frantic pursuit of fleeing prisoners. Orders were also given that new teleprinter messages with the original date were to be fabricated. These were to include varied very details in an effort to make them look dissimilar. For example, the vehicle carrying the prisoners had suffered punctures or engine trouble. There had been hand-to-hand -hand fighting between the prisoners and their escorts. Some shot prisoners had died before a doctor reached them, others had died on the way to a hospital. Adding to the subterfuge, these new messages were to be sent quite openly for anyone to read on the open teleprinter message rather than a state secret teleprinter message. This was to give the impression we've got nothing to hide. Less than three months after the Great Escape, the Allies invaded Europe, and most people's attention turned to these, uh, more I suppose, momentous events. For some time after the Germans surrendered, the British authorities were uncertain as to where to place responsibility for the murders. But a gradual accumulation of evidence appeared to clear the Luftwaffe. Eventually, 17 months after the murders, orders were given to the Royal Air Force to seek out an unknown number of murderers. They faced the enormous task given the chaos in post-war Europe, the vast territory to be covered, the millions of displaced persons crisscrossing Europe, and no less the fact that the perpetrators belonged to organisations, the Gestapo and Kripo, that in the wake of Germany's collapse had provided its members with false identities and forged documentation. The RAF Special Investigation Branch team assigned to this task consisted of just five officers and 14 NCOs. It was led by Wing Commander Wilfred Bowes and Squadron Leader Francis McKenna. It was active for three years and by painstakingly travelling across Europe 
and interviewing countless people, it gathered enough evidence to identify the culprits. Many of these were flown to England, interrogated by Lieutenant Colonel Scotland at London District Cage, which is in Kensington Palace Gardens. Many high-ranking Germans and war criminals were flown into London and interrogated actually at the London District Cage. During the course of their investigations, they came across these four photographs of Crippo. This is, Kiel, this is in the Kiel area. These are four of the actual escapers, and they've, they've used these cars. And what, what, what is somewhat bizarre is the other side of these, these have been recycled. There's a, something on the other side, you know, something kind of quite banal on the other side there, and they've reused them. And these four, these photographs have been taken basically the day that they were captured in the Crippo offices, and these four men were then taken out and murdered by Kill Gestapo. Soon after, in late July 1944, this poster appeared in prison and war camps. But by then, um, as the Allies had landed in Europe, official advice from Military Intelligence 9, the branch of military intelligence um, set up to, to contact and help prisoners of war basically advised against uh, trying to escape. And the prisoner's own judgment was that it was safer to stay put and await liberation. But this is the, you know, to all prisoners, uh, escape is no longer a sport. This is another one of the execution sites as well. And this is a reconstruction by the Special Investigation Branch of the RAF. And they've reconstructed with the assistance of one of the chauffeurs or drivers of one of these cars or actually happened by the roadside there and this is the shooting of squadron leader Thomas Kirby Green and flying officer Gordon Kidder and a member by Zlin Gestapo which is sort of Czechoslovakia way but you can imagine that the the scene the scenes across here for all 50 and they say they weren't murdered as 50 or in large groups were very similar to this the car stopped the Gestapo say, get out, uh, have a cigarette, relieve yourselves. You know, it's a long journey by the side of the road. Stood behind them and shot them in the back of the head. Other t or sometimes, you know, other parts of the body, but generally in the back of the head. And this is one of the investigation branches' re uh, reconstructions. There were two trials, really. The, the British military court in Hamburg conducted two trials of the alleged perpetrators. The first and largest was July to September 1947 and the 2nd October November 1948. Here you have Max Violand you've heard of before. This is Eric Schultz and he is the man who murdered squadron leader Bushell. Eventually these two both met Albert Pierpoint. And here is the death warrant of Schultz. Albert Pierpoint um, and his two assistants, they hung 13 of the men found guilty of murder. And it's a, there's a date there, they're hung in twos. So there's 13 of those, but um, he also, on the same day, there's 15. There's a notice that kind of went up in and around the prison or whatever. And there's another two there which are not, not related to the, um, the, the, the great escape as such. There's another two there. So in the morning, him and his assistants actually executed 15 of the men. Ultimately, of the 72 men indicted for the killing and conspiracy to kill, 21 were executed, 17 were in prison, 11 committed suicide, 7 were untraced, of, who, of whom 4 were presumed dead, 6 were killed in wartime, 5 were arrested but for political reasons a charge was not proceeded with, 1 was arrested and not prosecuted, but used as a material witness, three were acquitted, or the sentence was quashed on review. One remained free in East Germany until his death. Here's the nationalities of the 50 murdered men. Obviously, right across them, the dominions, French, Greek, all the Allied forces in a sense, outside, I suppose, you can say the Americans are virtually represented there. The ultimate fate of those responsible for and involved in this war crime, obviously Hitler, Himmler, Goering all committed suicide. Keitel, who's very much involved in it, one of the charges laid against him and Goering at Nuremberg, if you ever see the recordings, they ask them, what do you know about the murder of the 50 Allied airmen? 
Kaiser was hung after uh, the Nuremberg war trials. Gestapo chief Heinrich Muller is alleged to have died during the Battle for Berlin in April 1945, but there are numerous theories about what his ultimate fate was. Did he get away? Did the Americans capture him? Was he, you know, did, did, did he land up in Switzerland? No one quite knows what happened to him. The Breslau perpetrators, the, the two principals, Dr. Sharpwinkle and Lux. It's alleged that a force known as Unit Sharpwinkle and led by him was formed for the defense of Breslau. It was made up of Gestapo, Kripo, and an organization called Sipo, which is when the two of them combine. After the capitulation of Breslau, Russian officers acting upon information arrested a wounded German officer in a hospital masquerading as a Lieutenant Hagerman, who was in fact Sharpwinkle. He was twice interrogated by the British officer Captain Cornish in Moscow in August, 19, in August and September 1946. Although there were several Foreign Office requests asking for his extradition from Russia, his ultimate fate is unknown. Sharpwinkle was reported dead by the Russians on the 17th of October 1947. However, he may have been given some position suited to his temperament in the Soviet Security Service Administration. It's alleged that Lux, the, who led the actual execution squad from Breslau, died in the fighting in and around that city when he was a member of Sharpwinkle's detachment. A memorial to the 50 men was built by the Stagel of Prisoners in July 1944 with the Commandant's permission, Camp Commandant's permission. Von Lindener and various others were charged by the German authorities. Von Lindener, it seems, had a year's called fortress confinement and after the war he was held by the British for a couple of years but a lot of the ex-prisoners there did speak up for him and they had, um, I think the, the Luftwaffe were quite ashamed of what happened. The urns containing the ashes of the airmen were originally entombed here, but after the war, these are transferred to Poznan Military Cemetery. Hopefully, next time you see the film, The Great Escape, be through perhaps more knowledgeable eyes and uh, with greater respect for 50 brave and resourceful men who met tragic deaths. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 24th of March 2009 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.